0: If you can come on in, maybe make your way to your seat. Good morning, Grace Church of the Valley. So good to see your faces this morning. Come on in. We don't want to take any more time. We want to get as many questions as, as uh, we can in. And uh, welcome to Grace Church of the Valley. This is, I like to introduce him as my pastor. This is my pastor growing up. Uh, at the life of Grace Community Church, John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for for being here. You know, we were a few of us were at dinner uh, last night, and uh, I just I, I wanted to say thank you, John, because you had told us last night that just last week he preached his fiftieth Easter sermon at Grace Community Church. Is that phenomenal? 50 years on the glorious day of, of the resurrection. Let, let me tell you what we're going to do this morning. We've developed some questions. Some of those questions have come from you. Some of those questions have come from our leadership. So this really isn't an open mic. Um, it's really more some questions that we have uh, for Dr. MacArthur. And we're really going to try to pin our interest here on the priority of the local church and uh, what he would share with us in terms of the local church. And John, I kind of would like to even start maybe just before I ask you an initial question to go back um, even into your calling to ministry uh, a number of years back and maybe just the significance of that car accident and what was the Lord teaching you and how did he call you into pastoral ministry?
1: Uh, first of all, let me say how grateful I am to be here and how uh, thrilled I am to be in this beautiful new facility. I'm so thankful for you guys. We've, we've sort of been a distant partner uh, for the last dozen years, and to see this all come to fruition is just incredible. So, And Scott and I have been friends for, for a long time, and I'm so grateful he's here as well. Yeah, I, um, my, my grandfather was a pastor, um, and I... Although uh, he died when I was uh, nine or ten years old um, uh he was a he was a lovable person. I have nothing but fond loving memories of him. Uh, my father was a pastor um, and what I would say about my my dad was he was exactly the same at home as he was in the pulpit. What he preached is how he lived. And so I I grew up with these two models of faithful ministry. And I don't know that I ever had a um, a, a sort of voice from heaven kind of experience about going into the ministry. But it always just seemed the most wonderful thing that someone could do to me. It just seemed like there couldn't be anything better. My parents didn't put any pressure on me with regard to that. But... um, I still um, would say that my heart was selfish as a young person. Um, I, I sort of thought, and I may end up in ministry because it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do with your life, but um, I certainly had some plans of my own along the way. But after my freshman year um, it's, at college, I had a car accident. I got thrown out of a car going 75 miles an hour, and I slid down the highway about 125 yards on my back. Um, survived obviously but I ended up three months in bed trying to recover from that and um, I think that was crystallizing in my mind that I was not in charge of my life Um, I had never rebelled against the Lord I had never been an unbeliever, I just grew up always believing the gospel and loving what I saw um, being lived out in, in my parents but that was a crisis event that um, just flattened me out. And during those months, I, I just came to the place where I said, Look, Lord, obviously you're in charge of my life. Um, I, I want to do whatever you want me to do. And there was never a look back from, from that experience on. Um, but I, I think that was a pretty severe way for the Lord to get my attention. Um, and, and make me focus on what I would be doing the rest of my life. And uh, so I went back to school with an even stronger commitment to, to prepare to preach. And by the time I finished college, I had focused on... A stu- I, mean, I, I did a Greek minor, 24 units of Greek, because I knew I was going to preach the New Testament. And so I was pretty focused after that first freshman year. And, and through that accident, I think the Lord really got a hold of my heart. And I knew I couldn't fight that. So, um, the course was, was fixed.
0: When here, here we are today, and and we do want to say thank you to John. I think many of our church family knows this, that, uh, John was instrumental in the early years here 12 years ago to send the staff Uh, down here every Sunday, and so really such an instrumental part in the formation of our church. But when you look back, you're in your 50th year at Grace Community Church. I thought rather than ask you about just all 50 years, can you tell us about the first five years that you were at at that church? I was there as a little boy. It was actually, he began in 1969, so I'm asking him about 1969, to 1974, and I remember just kind of running around the church that year in between the sea of people, and it was really kind of a unique time, because I think we said in those years that it God just providentially, through the power of the word, blessed that, that one year it went from 500 to 1,000, right, then the next year from 1,000 to 2,000, then the next year doubled again from 2 to 4, but just give our... Our church family, a little bit of idea what happened there, what was taking place in those opening
1: five years. <laughs> uh, first of all, um, I, I, was, I, I was sort of given the opportunity at Grace Church, um, even though I was very young and had not pastored a church. Uh, Grace Church was a, was a strong, you know, flourishing church. They had had two very mature, older, Pastors, but they had a strong youth ministry. But they were older men. Uh, both of them died, and uh, the church had two widow pastors' wives on its hands. So I think the criteria for the next pastor was that he was not going to die. And <laughs> the only qualification I had was I was in my I was in my twenties. Could you get a young one? So, uh, I, in all honesty, um, I I do think that was a real factor. I had spoken um, at. Some camps with kids from Grace Community Church, and uh, some of the kids went back and said, "Can we get a young pastor? What about this guy and as it, as the Lord worked it out that was that was what drew me in. Um, there was a tremendous amount of life and uh, fellowship and energy and a lot of young people in the church at the time, so there was the kind of dynamic that would lead to growth. The church was not that old; I think when I came it was maybe thirteen years old something Something like your church now, and uh, so it was. It it, it didn't have a lot of tradition that had sort of bogged it down. Um, And I just, um, I I think there were a lot of things happening that were outside of me. Um, You'll remember back in the seventies, there was the Jesus movement. Uh, There was Explo '72 in Dallas, Texas, which was a you know almost seventy five thousand college students uh, there was an explosion of Campus Crusade. Uh, there were new Bible translations. there were Christian publishers. there was Maranatha music. There was all kinds of things happening in evangelical Christianity, driving people back to the Bible, back to a fresh approach to church and to worship and so I think we kind of caught that wave. There was a tremendous new interest in in the scripture, and I began I began to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, and I knew the most attractive, the most attractive possible message is Jesus Christ. That is incomparable, obviously. Uh, there is no one who is attra- as attractive as the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just said, let's just go into the Gospel of John. Uh, I didn't want to fix the church, change the theology. I just wanted to give them Christ uh, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, month after month after month until they saw His glory. Uh, so we focused on Christ, and there was a hunger uh, for, uh, for the teaching of the Word of God. Churches were still languishing in traditional things, lots of evangelistic messages, lots of topical messages, and we were just systematically teaching through books of the Bible, and this was not being done. This was a very unusual thing, but it was, as I was saying last night, some of the people, this is the, this is the necessary commitment of anybody who's a pastor. God has given us His revelation, and He expects us to, to present it to His people the way He revealed it to us. Um, feed the flock of God, and you feed them the meal that heaven has prepared. So it, you give it out the way it, God designed it and revealed it. So sequential exposition through the books is the way God revealed himself, and that's how we need to lead the church. So I started doing that. Um, people had had never heard that, but once they began to get an appetite for the teaching of the Word of God, they began to hunger for it. And uh, people began to tell other people, and they tell other people, and they just started... Pouring into the church, and again, remember, um, the the church was largely traditional, and there were not a lot of options. The charismatic movement hadn't burst onto the scene yet, so it wasn't sucking off a lot of people. Uh, there were just kind of traditional churches, but here was something that people, uh, once they once they experienced the feeding of the Word of God in this way, they wanted more of it. And as I was saying to you this morning, we began to get leaders from other churches coming to our church, uh, because they were frustrated by the lack of what was, by the, by the lack of that kind of teaching in their own churches. So those early years were, were really years of trying to figure out how to handle this influx of people. Um, how do we, I mean, we had kids coming and people coming, and how, how do we lead them? How do we teach them? How do we get Sunday school teachers uh, we, we were grabbing warm bodies off the patio and throwing them in a room with kids. And um, I remember I remember one Sunday when a guy came up to me and said, by the way, uh, who's the drunk usher? And I said, who's the drunk usher? Yeah, he said, he's just a warm-hearted guy. He's just completely bombed every Sunday, but he's just such a nice guy. So I guess somebody had commandeered some guy to be an usher and just happened to be an alcoholic. But, so we had to kind of work through, we work through... Who's the drunk usher, you know? Uh, we had those years. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, Scott, we were scrambling to try to figure out what to do with this. Uh, pretty soon, you know, we have two services, and then pretty soon we have three services. And then we, we, we meant, went to the, the gym, and uh, we, we had three services there. And sometimes we had people sitting outside. And I, I really don't think it was me. I think it was the—there was a wave of interest in the Word of God— uh, think about the, the dramatic reality of new translations of the Bible, which made the Scripture more accessible to people. Uh, think about the explosion of the Jesus people movement, and, and people were reading about that, and there was a new kind of worship music, and Christian publishers popping up all over the place, and a new material being made available. This was a huge, this was a huge movement. Uh, I, I, I can't honestly say that um, it was theological, but it was definitely biblical, back to the Bible, and uh, we just happened to be doing that, and it, it, it caught fire, and that's how it, how it took off. And of course, just like your church, young people, young families, leaders coming from other churches, eventually providing some maturity to our church, and we just took it as it came. Um, Nothing in those early years or even now was something that, that I planned. I, Like Luther said, I did nothing. The Word did everything.
0: Maybe uh, share with them. You've shared with me and us, and we know this, but so many of you have been affected either by books or tapes. But tell them what your commitment was that you modeled for me and so many of your focus and attention and even time and dedication to the Word of God in those
1: years. Well, I told him, you know, I probably need 25 or 30 hours a week to study the Bible to prepare to preach, because uh, Sunday morning services, we were doing Sunday night service, different message, a Wednesday night service. So I had to prepare three messages a week. I'd never pastored before, so I had nothing. I didn't have a bag that I could pull out and that I'd done in the past, so uh, I knew I needed that. the, 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 the downside of that is, if you're going to demand 25 to 30 hours to study, you better have something to say on Sunday, because uh, they know, you know, it better pay it's off. nothing new. No, it better yeah. pay off. So, so they said, okay, well, we'll see how that goes. It seems like a, a lot of time, but, uh, it, and I, you know, when I was in those early years making that commitment, I knew that if I did that for the first 10 years of my life, or maybe even less, maybe even five years of my life I would be in a groove that would, would keep going um, just, a, just a perception that may help you to, to understand that people sometimes say to me you must be very, very disciplined to, to do the kind of preparation you do week after week after week, year after year after year, no, that has nothing to do with self discipline that has to do with habit this is who I am, this is what I do you understand that it's yeah. just habit i don't have to push myself i don't have to make demands on myself i don't have to fight to do it this is who i am this is what i do mm-hmm. i tell young men you develop those habits in the first few years of your ministry and you, the, the groove will be there for the rest of your life and but the lord was kind to me in that i saw immediate response yeah. from the people immediate response and I, I actually have always felt like you know there's a lot of ways to preach the bible you can be kind of a kind of application oriented you know you're you're preaching scripture but you're, you're kind of hurry to the application or you can be more doctrinally oriented where you're you're drawing out of every text the the sound doctrine that's there and that doctrine in and of itself has massive implications So I always felt like the implications of sound theology were more powerful than the application. It wasn't so much that I wanted to tell somebody what to do. I just wanted them to feel the massive weight of divine truth on their conscience and on their minds. So that there were all kinds of things that would be almost immediate applications. So it was theological, doctrinal kind of emphasis. And at the same time, for the first eight years I was there, or more, I had a men's Bible study on Saturday morning. Uh, and I, I took them through systematic theology because I, I needed their theology to catch up. Uh, I didn't want to wait for it to gradually develop. I, I wanted to get all the men, all the leaders in the church, and give them uh, an exposure to systematic theology. So out of that came all the church leaders. And uh, so it, on the one hand, I, I've always said... I wanted to preach the Word of God to the, pot, to the congregation. On the other hand, I wanted to pour my life into men, multiplying men. And as years have gone on, out of that comes the Master's Seminary. And just my whole life has been defined by having influence on men in developing them for, for ministry. It's, it's way beyond anything I ever imagined.
0: You know, back in those years, you know, in the early years, and we'll ask some more pertinent questions, but... I remember that chicken coop that was out in the yeah. parking lot. But I remember you ha- there was a little shack, and I think we called it the tape shack. Right. And that was when the cassettes came. And I know many of you have either, that sounds old now, right? The cassettes, now they're on CD, of course, and now it's just online. But uh, tell us, j- just maybe they've not heard, tell them how you found out about your radio ministry that you didn't know tell happened. Me. And then a little bit about Grace to you.
1: Well, yeah, I, um, I, we were just teaching, and we had a guy in our church named Vern Lummis. I don't know if you remember him. And he said, you know, shut-ins need to hear these sermons. He had a, a heart for shut-ins, people who couldn't get to church. So he said, well, I think we should make tapes for shut-ins. Well, in those days, it was reel-to-reel, this big reel going like this, you know. And he would take these big reels off to some shut-in's house and and play the reels for them, and and he was he was copying them in real time at real speed, so it was a laborious thing. And then uh, I found out about a thing called a cassette. Um, that's how old I am. <laughs> uh, somebody had a new invention called a cassette, and uh, we we started getting those cassettes. And and the idea was to to, to make as many cassettes as we could. There was no mass duplication equipment, so you took a whole bunch of little Craig cassette players and linked them all together with little <laughs> little lines, and you, you just kept recording one cassette at a time and passing them out. And at one time I got, a, I got a call from somebody and said, we appreciate your, your radio ministry. I said, we don't have a radio ministry. And this person was in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. And uh, I said, we don't have any radio ministry. Well, as it turned out, we went back at WRBS and, a great Christian radio station back there with with, uh, Tom Bissett, the uh, wonderful guy. Uh, He just was taking these cassettes and putting them on the radio with no program. He called it um, Evening Pulpit. And he just threw a cassette on. And so he he didn't ask us. He didn't tell us. (laughs) He's just playing cassettes. And people are saying, who is this guy? And all of a sudden we backed into a radio ministry. Uh, And then we thought, well, maybe we ought to do this on purpose. So there was a little radio station in Glendale. It was called it as K I E V, K I E V, and it was primarily um, it was primarily the horse races, and um, and the news, and some music. And so one of our guys thought, well, let's let's buy a half an hour on KIEV. And so we were between the news and the horse races. And they, they absolutely hated us. So it didn't survive. This is not our audience. So our first run into the radio there did, didn't go very far. And then um, a little Christian radio station popped up in Oxnard. And um, we said, let's try that. And they, this is all done by Pete, not by me, but but the guys in the church who had a passion for this and we started in Oxnard and from there um, 40 years
0: later. And you know what, what is there now? How many downloads a month on Grace
1: to You is it? It's uh, hard for me to believe this but there are about 2 million sermon downloads a month a month from a month. obviously
0: all over the globe
1: Yeah. and uh, that's this amazing. This is a this is... And look, I tell young pastors all the time, the good news is your messages will be heard all over the world. The bad news is your messages will be heard all over the <laughs> world. So you can have to decide whether that's good or bad news. Um, yeah, it's a staggering time to be alive. It is absolutely a staggering time to be alive. And uh, all the more reason... You know, I look back on this, Scott, and this is, this is so amazing how the Lord led... There are, there are lots of ways to preach, and legitimately so, um, but for some reason, I don't know other than the Lord just kind of overruling any other option, I decided that I would preach in such a way that the sermon would never be tied to current events, or it would never be tied to my culture, because I didn't... Wait, which is just interesting. I would say that's the opposite now how many
0: people would look at it right right
1: right exactly and i don't know why um i I decided i'm just going to explain the bible i'm just going to explain the bible and if i need to illustrate it i would rather use a biblical illustration than a than a secular illustration because a biblical illustration not only uh not not only can elucidate the point but it has authority because it's divine it has power So I decided that I would use biblical illustrations rather than cultural illustrations, that I would approach a text from its own context, not the cultural context, and I don't know why. I didn't know people doing this particularly. It it just was something the Lord put in my heart, and so what we have is 50 years of preaching that goes across the globe into every conceivable and inconceivable culture, and and the Word of God is not bound. It's not tied to me. It's not, it has nothing to do with my personal experience. I don't preach about myself. I don't talk in the first person. I don't really know why I was so compelled that everything had to be biblical. Mm-hmm. Everything had to be biblical. But the result now is you have, for example, this amazes me. There are four people who go 24-7 around the clock translating every sermon from the Pulpit of Grace Church into Vietnamese. Mm-hmm and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons in Vietnamese and they developed a little box yeah with a how chip. are
0: they listening to that what they, is th- that there's a little
1: box and they have a chip that holds 35 hours of the Vietnamese translation of the pulpit of grace our grace church and they listen out in rice paddies and then they have the ability to to go to places where there's electrical power and plug this little thing in and it holds a charge. Wow. And they can go back to hub points and turn in when they've listened to their little 35-hour deal and get another one. And they're just, we think right now there are about a half a million Vietnamese people doing this. Wow. These are in rice paddies in Vietnam and they're listening to a guy in Southern California. <laughs> the culture is just, it, it's completely alien. But the word of God is not. So in those early years, um, I, I, think, I, I think it was my view of Scripture that just drove me. I had such a high view of Scripture. I didn't think I needed to help it. I didn't think I needed to add to it. I didn't want to take away from it. I, I, it had been so powerful in my life in and of itself that I just wanted to unleash it and that's what we talk about in Grace to You unleashing God's truth one verse at a time and so you know I look back only the Lord could have directed me in that way because you know as a communicator you can you can go a lot of ways to communicate and to communicate effectively I don't know why I was so locked down Where you know obviously you come from a number of generations of
0: pastors uh, the Lord used Dr. Feinberg at Talbot but was that just something that the spirit of god did in your I, life I to give to, you a
1: tenaciousness i have to believe that god yeah. i i I, don't, I can't i don't know how to explain it mm-hmm. um, i remember as a junior high kid and in, in high school and I, and, I, and i don't know exactly when the lord actually saved me i, I never never was a time i didn't believe but I knew there was something more in the Christian life than I'd ever understood, mm-hmm. so I, I would read things um, like E.M. Bounds' "Power Through Prayer," you know, about guys that wore holes in the floor praying for so many hours, mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd read "Imitation of Life" by Thomas Aquinas—a a mystical thing, trying to chase down where was this power and where was a Christianity that was beyond the surface. And so there was always the the desire to know, always the desire to Go deeper into the truth, mm-hmm. and it finally struck me when I was a seminary student mm-hmm. that that this was an inexhaustible treasure mm-hmm. um, and that if and, and every the, the process of discovery for me was and still is the the joy of my life yeah. preaching is work mm-hmm. preaching is is what you need to do that 's my calling but the the thrill of ministry is not the preaching for me it's the discovery process and here after all these 50 years it's as thrilling today as it ever was for me to go into the word of God and and tap its inexhaustible resources Wow,
0: I just appreciate that I appreciate what you said about habit here you're preaching in a little bit in our worship service but just out of habit I had to go back in John this week and get ready for next week and it's just the force of habit, John. We're, we're so thankful for the life of our church and what the Spirit of God and the Word of God are doing here. What would you? What are the marks of a healthy church? What are the priorities of a local church? I, I think uh, here in the Central Valley, I think people are driving from many places to get here. Certainly, not everybody's bowed their knee to bail. We don't feel that in any way, but as you think 50 years at Grace Community, what are the marks of a healthy church? What are the priorities of a healthy church? And even maybe wrapped in that, explain that Ephesians 4 model yeah. from the very
1: beginning. Um, first of all, uh, um, is an unwavering commitment to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. If there is any... any um, Doubt about anything in the scripture, Um, there is an Achilles heel in that church, in that leadership, in that ministry. Unwavering commitment to the authority and inerrancy of scripture. Explain that. Elaborate right on that. Well, I'll explain it in, in one illustration. The Masters University, this is our 90th year. There are a lot of Christian colleges that have been around 90 years that are no longer Christian. 90 years after this school starts, it is fixed unwaveringly at exactly the same point of commitment it was 90 years ago when it started. And when people ask me, what has anchored the school? Here's my answer. The doctrine of six-day creation. The doctrine of six-day creation has anchored this school. Because that is the most assaulted doctrine in the modern era. And if you can withstand that, it's easy to withstand the rest. So, this is, look, and I, I don't want to get into the scientific side of this thing, except to say this, science can't explain creation, because creation was a miracle, any more than science can explain how Jesus walked on water, or how he raised dead people. There's no scientific explanation for a miracle, and the, the, the greatest miracle ever was the miracle of creating the entire universe in six days. That's what the Bible says. Now, if you don't believe that, then you have a problem with the Bible. And if you don't believe the Bible there, where else, do you don't, where else will you not believe when it's convenient for you not to believe? So what anchors the church is its absolute, absolute commitment to the authority and integrity of Scripture at every point. And, when, and, and you don't have to defend that. The, the Bible has its own glory. Uh, God has glory. That glory is manifested from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit But the Bible has glory. The the Bible has its own glory. When you open it up, the glory of the Word of God, which is really an emanation of the character of God, comes forth. Um, I don't defend the Bible. I let the Bible manifest its glory. Um, The the, the power is in the text itself. So I think that's the first thing. Um, And where there's any, and, and whether it's Whether it's stated or unstated, if there's any idea that something has more power, um, more ability to change lives than the Word of God, or the Word of God has anything that should be legitimately questioned, you suck the power out of the life of the church and its people. The second thing is a high, high view of God. I don't think... I, I think God has been trivialized. God has been lessened. His glory has been lessened. That's true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is um, sometimes uh, um, we at the conference called Strange Fire a few years ago, the Holy Spirit is is treated with scorn and mockery, I think from the divine perspective, because he's cheapened into some of the foolish things that are blamed on the Holy Spirit that have nothing to do with him. Christ can be diminished. I, I just think understanding the glory of God And um, when I was young, I read Stephen Charnock's book on the the character of God, the nature and existence of God. It was just overwhelmed that anybody could write a book that thick on God. Um, I I think a high, high view of God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is is critical. I think um, a commitment to sound doctrine, that the Bible yields doctrine, uh, that it doesn't make suggestions, it yields absolute propositional truth. Um, those, those are the core things. Uh, and then I think um, an, understand, an understanding of the priority of expositing Scripture, teaching people the Word of God. Uh, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Feed the flock of God. Feed them what? Feed them the Word of God. Preach the Word in season, out of season. Uh, So, it's it's commitment to the Word of God. Um, I think maybe the next thing in my line is strong, godly men leading the church. Um, Elders, shepherds, pastors, building up strong, godly men. I think those are the things that make for strong churches. And I would just add... In the midst of all of this strength, mm-hmm. a strong conviction about the Word of God, strong convictions about God Himself, strong convictions about uh, teaching the Word, strong male leadership in a church, um, you, you could get a little bit authoritative mm-hmm. and you could run roughshod over people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there needs to be a, a desire grace and love and humility Um, humility is the the noblest of all virtues and to have that kind of conviction um, and sound theology and power in preaching and teaching can lead to pride and self promotion and um, one of the, the things that one of the things that happens in, in a church if you stay there is it brings you down uh, because you have to live your life there and all your strengths and weaknesses are manifest and you're, you're living a real life in a real community of people who know you well and they, they know your wife, they know your kids, they know your grandkids. And I think that's so healthy and so helpful. Um, but, you know, just to tell you how serious humility is, Paul said that the Lord sent him a thorn in the flesh. And uh, he said it was a messenger of Satan. That's an an angel, a a demon, literally tearing up the Corinthian church. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from exalting myself. Um, I've been asking this coming week to give a seminar at uh, T4G and there's a, hundreds of pastors have signed up for it on how do you deal with criticism in the ministry? Um, how do you deal with attacks in the ministry? How do you deal with those things? And I would honestly say that those are some of the most spiritually beneficial things that you will ever experience. Uh, you need to be where Paul was in Second Corinthians, where you say, um, when I'm weak, then... His power is manifest in me. So um, leadership should have a grace and love and humility to go along with all that authority.
0: Well, I, I say thank you to you for uh, modeling those things to me. I think so many of you hear, John, radio, online, tapes, books, but you modeled those things for me being a shepherd uh, I've never seen you in anger. I think people think you control the elder meetings. And I think our goal when, when I was a pastor there was, t- you know, you had so many things you were doing. We wanted to have your head look up because other things were going on in the room. And I'm just thankful that you've modeled those things for me. John, if we, if we turn the corner just a bit, because, you know, growing up there at Grace Church, it never seemed like it was a polemic ministry to us. You were just proactively teaching the scriptures. But if you could just maybe flip the the question on what are the priorities of the church, maybe to ask you what are the threats to the church? What are the obstacles to the church? What what concerns you? I I, I suppose I'm I'm thinking when you did R.C. Sproul, part of his funeral, you really said this is a wonderful time to be involved in the expansion of the gospel. In fact, uh, Vietnam is a strength of that. It's the greatest time we've had, but we're also in a time of threats and obstacles. How do you, uh, how do you attack those threats and obstacles? What's coming for us in the future?
1: Um, I think the very obvious thing is that whatever's wrong in the world, whatever's corrupt in the world, whatever's ungodly in the world, Whatever is vile in the world, whatever is sinful in the world, has been turned loose at a level that has never been in human history. With uh, media, social media, internet, uh, and film, TV, and all of this, all that is bad has never been so available. You can you can have it on your in your hand. You can have the most wretched, corrupt stuff on the planet, immediately threatening your your life on every level. Um, this, is a, this is a disastrous time uh, to to be alive uh, when you talk about the onslaught of sin. And I'm not surprised because he, the Bible says evil men will get worse and worse. So as we move toward the, toward the end of human history as we know it, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is to be expected. And there, there are going to be false Christs and, and many more of them are going to be coming and false teachers. So... Um, there, there's, I think that the danger, the real danger is this, um, what I call spiritual AIDS. If you have AIDS, we don't hear a lot about it anymore because certain medications have mitigated it to some degree. But if you have AIDS, you can die of a thousand diseases because AIDS is an immune deficiency disease. Um, and I think that's true in, in the church. The church can die of a thousand heresies because it lacks discernment. It, it has no way to defend itself against the the, the heretical diseases that are out there. So I, I think the great threat to the church is doctrinal ignorance, biblical ignorance. And um, and there just doesn't seem to be a will to make that the priority in the church. The, the, the contemporary megachurch... I mean, there are some churches that are just old traditional churches going through the motions. The contemporary megachurch movement is designed to look as much and feel as much like the world as possible to make the people in the world feel comfortable there when they ought to feel miserable there. Um, but, I, but I think this absence of sound doctrine, this lack of discernment, threatens the church with a thousand heresies. It could die of a thousand heresies, and it's susceptible to all kinds of heresies. People talk about God and, and don't even know who they're talking about. They talk about Christ, they don't know who they're talking about. Uh, they, they talk about being born again or salvation. They haven't got a clue what it's about. Um, so I, I, I was thinking about this when I was preaching in Galatians. Um, Paul says, if, if any of you are circumcised, in other words, the Judaizers are saying you need to be circumcised because you need to follow Moses. So they were adding works. They were saying, "We believe in Christ, we believe in grace, we believe in faith, But what but, but we think you, you, you have to keep the rituals and the, the rules that Moses laid down. Paul says, "If you add anything to faith, you, he says, are severed from Christ. Christ is of no effect to you. You are fallen from grace." That is really strong language. You mean to tell me that if I believe my baptism is necessary for my salvation, I am severed from Christ? He is of no effect to me. I am fallen from grace? Just adding one work, one ritual work to the gospel of faith severs you from Christ. I think most Christian people if somebody came along and said, well, you know, I happen to believe that you need to be baptized to be a believer, but I believe in Christ, they wouldn't argue with that. Paul says, if you believe that, you're severed from Christ. He has no benefit to you. He even goes so far as to say you are fully under the law. If you live by one aspect of it, you're bound to all of it, and it will damn you because you can't keep it. I just think that kind of precision, that kind of clarity... Is just completely missing in the church, and I, look, I think you, you you know me well enough, Scott. I don't like to pick a fight. I'm not trying to do that. I, um, but but it's this clarity of Scripture that when you when you communicate this, the people at our church don't think I'm controversial. You said that, I never thought you no, were. Yeah. because we're just taking it in the Word of God as it comes. But when it gets out there. Somewhere else, and you know, I, I like people are attacking me all the time, and that's fine as long as they're attacking what I've said that is an accurate representation of Scripture. So I, I, I just think the church is in dire danger uh, because there are so many false teachers. They are absolutely everywhere out there, and the media proliferates them, um, and it. And the style that the church has created to accommodate the world uh, has literally drawn the world in. And so instead of the church being separated, the church is joined to the world. And um, that's, that's a death knell. Um, so I, I'm deeply concerned uh, about that. I don't know what the next heresies are going to be, but they could virtually be anything. Uh, there's no limit to what can go wrong.
0: Hey, let me me ask you a question. I was just thinking this. You're preaching through the book of Galatians. I checked this week. uh, You had done the book of Galatians back in 1973. So you're returning to it. What's been fresh for you to go back through the book of Galatians? What has struck you with that? And maybe tie that in. Because Galatians is all about the gospel of grace, the purity of the gospel. But you wrote the gospel according to Jesus. Comment on that. I mean, there needs to be verifying marks in the life of a believer, and yet it's all grace. Where are you in Galatians four? Did you there t- talk to me about that balance in there? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, first of all, I don't remember anything I said in 1973. <laughs> so, that, so it was like a It was like. Okay, here we go. This is like a first time through. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember basically how to interpret the book, but yes. so it's been a fresh and incredibly, God, incredibly wonderful yeah. experience for me. Um, but again, it, it, the gospel is the heart of everything. It's just the heart of everything, and you've got to get the gospel right. So when I came out of seminary, you know, some of the battles were inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may remember even when you were in school talking yes. about inerrancy. And, and there, were, there, were, there were, that was the big issue. What about the authority of the Bible? What about the authority of the Word of God? I never believed for a moment that I would spend most of my public ministry outside my church trying to help people who went to church understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. This is mind-boggling, but it, a few years went by in my ministry, and I, I began to realize there is a false gospel floating around. And Paul in Galatians one says, "If anybody preaches another gospel, let him be damned." Then he repeats it twice. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, "This is this is this is a disaster. We've got a false gospel floating around." And the, the idea was, you can you receive Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily as Lord. And you could it got to the point where you you could actually be an unbelieving believer or a believing unbeliever. In other words, if your life never changed, if you were immoral and sinned as much as you did before you believed, you were still on your way to heaven. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of salvation that had no repentance and no necessary transformation and no obvious manifest fruit. And I just thought this was horrendous. Mm-hmm. It was just... I remember Moody Press sent me a book uh, written by a guy named Jody Dillo All right. All right. on the kingdom. And I wrote them back. They wanted me to review it before they published it. I said, don't publish this. Do not publish this book. This is, ho- this is horrible mm-hmm. theology. Well, they published it. Mm-hmm. And then later on, another book came out by a guy at Dallas named Zane Hodges. Oh, yeah. He basically stripped salvation of everything, everything. No repentance, no confession of Jesus as Lord, no fruit, nothing. And you're still saved if you change your mind about who Jesus is. That was the line. Yeah, so
0: repentance for Zane Hodges became a work if you told people to repent. Anything was
1: a work. Repentance was a work. Uh, um, Any kind of commitment was a work. Uh, Confession of Jesus as Lord was a work. And so they they sucked it all out of the gospel. And what they came up with was awful. So I wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and tried to go back and get the gospel right. And then I wrote another book after that called The Gospel According to the Apostles. And then more recently, The Gospel According to Paul. And I just came out in another book, The Gospel According to God. And in the meantime, I wrote Ashamed of the Gospel and uh, Hard to Believe, and the Jesus Week You Can't Ignore, now, all these books, book after book after book after book, trying to get people to understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. And again, in Galatians, yeah. it's just devastating to say to people, if you're trusting in any single work, you're not saved. Mm-hmm. Christ means nothing to you. To get that kind of focus and that kind of clarity on the gospel has been something that I've done throughout my whole ministry life. We can be wrong about a lot of things, and this is where RC and I were, were such good friends. I mean, we—I uh, I remember sitting in a room, locked up for seven hours, at e- when ECT came out. the Evangelicals and Catholics together, and they were trying to bring Protestants and Catholics together—evangelicals and Catholics. So we had this high-level meeting down in Florida, and uh, RC invited me to come. So it was myself and RC, and. Um, The other side was Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, Bill Bright, and Chuck Colson. And um, it was a discussion for seven hours on the gospel. And the other guy was Jim Kennedy. He was on our side. And I was a young guy there. I was really, I was out of my league in many ways, but I don't don't know how I got there, but I was there. And they're talking about the essence of the gospel and how the Catholics believe in faith and works. And, And at one point Sproul got on the table. He got his <laughs> knees table. up on the table. Yeah. And he put his finger right at Colson and he said, I don't think you get it. We're talking about whether you're a Christian or not. Mm. That kind of precision with the gospel. I mean it was you would have loved to have been a fly on that wall. Mm. And I said at his funeral, yeah. you know, I'm the last man standing. Yeah. Because Kennedy's gone and now Sproul's gone to heaven. So um, but but it was a it was It was an Everest moment to be there, and and I said to to Jim Packer, I said, okay, Jim, you tell me what a person has to believe to be saved, what's too little and what's too much. What does he have to believe to be saved? To which he said, that's a good question. No answer. No answer. You have to know that. You have, what, how could you preach the gospel? How would you answer that just for
0: our people? What must you know? And then when does it tip over Galatians and
1: become the too person, much? And the person and work of Christ. Yeah. Your own wretched sinfulness and inability. And that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Yeah. That's the gospel. It nothing to was... do with baptism. Yeah. Nothing to do with church membership. Yeah. Nothing to do with covenant family. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things we were talking about. Yeah, they flow out, certainly.
0: You know, R.C., he was a funny guy, wasn't he, John? I remember sitting with you when we were doing the Truth for Life conference. And uh, and I was there with you in the front row, and R.C. was preaching on justification. Remember, and I just said, hey, John, the, the guy never looks down. He just, and he's just, he was a rare individual in his mind and his heart and photographic memory. Uh, he was a special man for the Lord, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he was, he was just really bright. Um, I remember sometimes when he would come to preach at Grace mm-hmm. and to walk in the back door and say, Is there a Bible in the pew I can use? <laughs> that, I'm
0: laughing because I could <laughs> see him doing that.
1: And he'd just take the Bible and, and just launch. Oh. But I have to say this, the, yeah. when we do the Ligonier conferences through the years, yeah. the guys that do the deaf signing yeah. said that for every one word he spoke, I did four. Yes. So he didn't have to say as much as me because I was talking faster. Yeah. <laughs> so he needed less notes. Yes, <laughs>
0: that's right. He was funny. I remember when we went up to do that q and I just leaned over to him. And I said, just if there's any eschatology questions, let us answer them. Um, but a sports trivia man, he knew everything about the Pittsburgh. Oh. But what a, what a dear friend he is, and thank you for your stance. Here's a question that well, I got. Well, I just going to say,
1: now yeah. in heaven, he, he's got it all straight. He's got it
0: all straight right now.
1: He could he join was, your church now. He, he could didn't.
0: come here. <laughs> he would be here. Here's a question I got from one of our people submitted this and I think it's fair. Um, they said, I have many friends and family that attend churches that have shallow biblical teaching. It burdens me and I find it difficult. Our family somewhat feels like an outcast outcast. What encouragement do you have for us to be humble and loving and not proud and judgmental?
1: Yeah. Look, it, I'm so glad that question came up, Scott. Um, you are responsible to make it your ambition to be pleasing to the Lord, right? Amen. That's your calling. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to what? Glory. To the glory of God. That's your calling. There is, there is no higher calling for a believer than to pursue the glory and the pleasure of God Therefore, you need to be in the place where that is maximized. There should be nothing that holds you in another place. Nothing. Not relationships, family, um, experience, comfort, down the street, you know, it's close. Those should never compel you. Never. You ought to go as far as you need to go to get the very, very best of what the Lord has to offer in His Word, and be a part of people who love His Word as well. Um, You you don't need to defend yourself in doing that. You don't need to feel like you've been somehow uh, disloyal to another church. Um, Just a a, a kind of a low-life illustration, but if there's a terrible restaurant in town, you don't go there. You go where the food is good. You, you, if you're loyal to, to a place that doesn't feed you what you need, you don't go there. I mean, if you're loyal, you're stupid. You would acknowledge it. Spiritually, it's far more critical that you be fed the Word of God. Your whole life is at stake. Your kids are at stake. This is generational stuff. You get that? This is generational. Bad teaching produces bad kids who then produce another generation. That's why the Old Testament says the sins of the fathers are visited in the third and fourth generation. doesn't mean there's a curse on three and four generations. It simply means that bad leadership is hard to root out. It, 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 it's generational. It just goes on and on and on and on. So you need to be in a place where you're pursuing the highest and the very best available to you and you're making that possible for the people you love and care for, um, and that's that's the reason this the Lord has brought this church here to to provide that for you. And you need to gather up all your friends. Don't be hesitant to invite people. Um, I was saying to Scott earlier that this church is going to grow. I bet if if I were to come back here in a year or two years, you'll probably be having two services because you're being fed. You're involved in this loving relationship in a church, and you're going to start talking about it to people. You need to recruit people here. They don't need to languish in churches where they can't grow. They're not they're not living triumphant, victorious Christian lives because they don't have the means to do it because they're not being taught adequately. They're not being nurtured and and uh, sharpened by you know being rubbed up against other believers. So you, you need to bring everybody here. You need to find everybody you can and get them here as fast as you can for their own spiritual blessing and benefit.
0: That's helpful. I think that's a question that many are asking. And maybe just as time goes, I, I, I want to ask you this because when I grew up at the church there, I think it's the common thought that, that most people think, hey, just people are coming and they're being attracted to it which is true. But I'd like you just to comment on the nature of evangelism, how we can be effective for the gospel. And yet, I remember I was sharing with you in the back room that one time you asked people for a show of hands who came to Christ. And it seemed like, in a setting of a couple thousand people, it looked like 40, 50% to me yet nobody would say uh, you're an evangelist. But comment, how can we stay committed to the scripture, priority, how does effective evangelism work for us going forward?
1: It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crystal clear mandate for, for a pastor to feed the flock of God. Amen. Feed the flock of God. Don't try to get a bunch of unbelievers in there and entertain them. Yeah. Feed the flock of God. Shepherds don't have sheep, sheep have sheep. Mm-hmm. So feeding the flock of the church gathers to be edified and worship and scatters to evangelize. If 50% of Grace Community Church, and probably more than that, uh, have come to Christ uh, through the influence of Grace Church, 49% of the 50% have come to Christ because of personal relationships, not because of an evangelistic event. Um, The the Great Commission was given to every believer, and... um, most people, genuinely though, just, just in general, most people come to Christ through the influence of another believer. Mm-hmm. Um, media may play a, a kind of a final role, but some, some plant the seeds, some water, and God gives the increase. But I, I do think the church has to be committed to the Great Commission. And I think it's not a duty when your life is full of joy and blessing and fruitfulness you're just living out your Christianity and you have opportunity to, to talk to other people. Every Sunday night at Grace Church is baptism Sunday night. And we just, every Sunday night, people are being baptized and giving their testimony Sunday night after Sunday night after Sunday night. We've been doing that for years and years. And um, that's because our, our and it, it's not a, because we give an invitation to people to come forward and be saved, it's just the flow of life coming to Christ through the influence of the people at Grace Church. This is let your light so shine, right? That men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's, it's not about buttonhole street corner evangelism, although there are times when that's, that's good to do. It's, it's about living a transformed life. You know, the, the German philosopher said, show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your Redeemer. If we talk about a Redeemer who transforms lives, it's pretty important that we put that on display. You know, I mean, if if you're going to go to the brag on your dentist, you ought to smile and be convincing. Um, <laughs> there ought to be some proof that he knew what he was doing. And I think in Christianity, sometimes we we want to jump to the message at a media level without the life that is convincing of the transformation. So the task of the whole church is... To gather to worship and be edified and scatter to evangelize. And you evangelize by the way you live. And here's how it works. The believability of the gospel, the believability of the gospel is related to the believability of the transformation of the lives of the people in the church. They'll believe you're preaching a transforming gospel when the community sees your transformed life.
0: That's helpful. And I know they probably heard me say this, but I got that from you. You said it in those early years that if you can't take care of the depth, God's going to take care of the breadth. And I just always thought that was helpful for a focus on the commitment to his word, high view of God, proper view of him and Christ and the Holy Spirit. Listen, our time is up. We're going to take a a little break here. And uh, we're going to come back. And you're preaching on Matthew 18. 16. Matthew 16. I will build my church. It's going to be a great day. Can I pray? And then you're welcome just to take a little break and then we'll come back. Start right at 1030. Father, thank you for this wonderful time. Thank you, Father, for the word of God. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're active. You're at work. Thank you for John. Thank you for his modeling to all of us, to so many here in his 50th year. At Grace Community Church. We're so grateful for him. Thank you, Father, for his influence in the life of our church here. And uh, Father, we pray that your glory is seen. We pray that the person of Christ is exalted. Father, we give thanks for this day. Thanks for our friend. Thank you for my pastor. Father, we're grateful for your blessings to us. May we stay faithful to this generation and to the next. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.